Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for September 30th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we learn about unique new research on night pollinators, and we get to know another inductee in the Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame, Andrew Wargo. We also explore the partnership between Five Oaks Duck Lodge and the University of Arkansas at Monticello and the launch of the Five Oaks Ag Research and Education Center. First up, we talk to researcher and former University of Arkansas graduate student Stephen Robertson, who specialized in entomology and plant pathology, about his research on night pollinators, which was recently featured in several scientific journals. He talks about what insects pollinate at night and what types of crops appear to benefit. I'm here with Stephen Robertson. You are a former University of Arkansas graduate assistant, correct, in the Department of Entomology. Now, where and where are you now? Uh, right now, I am in South Dakota working at uh, the Ecdysis Foundation on Blue Dasher Farms. Okay. All right. So, and how's that going? It's going incredibly. It's a completely different experience. A lot of what we do is get our hands into the game and actually try to put some skin into it. So we've got a lot of chickens, turkeys, farm animals for meat. And so it's a lot of, a lot of management, but you know, our major focus is regenerative agriculture. And so okay. we do uh, a lot, a lot of research as well. Interesting. So, but what we're going to talk about today is some work you did while in Arkansas, you were looking into uh, what you term nocturnal pollinators. Can you give yeah. us a little bit of background on that and what you mean by that? Well, when the term pollinators comes up, you know, typically what people think are, are bees and particularly the, the western honeybee. Um, and all those are active during the day. What happens at mm-hmm. night is less familiar to the scientific community. And, and as we do more and more research, we're recognizing that they're just as important and in some cases even more so than uh, their diurnal con- counterparts. And, and what are some examples of these uh, nighttime pollinators? Well, primarily what we're talking about are going to be moths, mm-hmm. uh, but beetles are, are well known uh, okay. to be active in the evening, and, and they're also uh, participatory in pollinating plants. Uh, flies as well can be nocturnally active, okay. and, and they're also somewhat involved, we believe. Now, how did you how did you come about this discovery? You you were you were working on some things, and and this is sort of something you kind of found along the way. Yeah. So the uh, the original observation happened. I was doing some augmentation on vein traps to see if we could improve the trapping efficacy broadly, rather than just using it to to catch bees and uh, unravel their biodiversity. And and in doing so, during the fruit bloom. Um, I had used some nectar volatile components to augment these traps and I started catching moths during the fruit bloom. And I was like, well, this is, this is interesting. So then I just spent a couple nights out uh, in the middle of the night, seeing if, if moths were visiting these, uh, these flowering plants at the time it turned out they were. And it was about a year later, a friend of mine found a, a peach tree at a, a wild peach tree in a wildlife management area, just West of Fayetteville went out there and, the moths on it just blew me away and I knew that was the project I needed to focus on. Interesting. So yeah, what kind of, of, you know, plants, crops, uh, benefit the most from these nocturnal pollinators? Well, our research shows that apples benefit pretty well. We're talking, uh, not a 50, 50 split. If you want to think about it in, in those terms, nocturnal versus diurnal pollination mm-hmm. uh, as far as visitation abundance and just attraction to and what I think that they could be involved in it's across the board um, I was finding huge numbers on nectarines peaches uh, blueberries probably the most diverse and abundance uh, of moths okay um, blackberries so it's a so it's a wide variety of things and that's interesting. And as you mentioned, this is not something that's been studied a lot at the very least, correct? I mean, this is something that uh, hasn't been discussed or, or even written about that much. It is, uh, it is definitely poorly represented in the literature. <laughs> okay. Um, and tell me ultimately, 
what kind of this kind of having this kind of discovery and doing this kind of research, what, what do you think it could lead to? What do you think it could uh, mean ultimately here? I mean, you mentioned the bees and people's kind of focus on bees. Uh, what's the importance of, of, of these pollinators? Well, bees do, as, as we think, uh, the majority of the work, at least that's how the, the literature has been presented. And anything that happens to our diurnal populations could represent threats to our food security. Okay. Uh, the addition of a new group doesn't necessarily bring in new food security, but it does represent a group that is adding to it. And so there could be greater stability in the way we produce food than we previously thought just based on diurnal populations. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now, are there any, you know, looking at this, having this knowledge, what's the next step? Is it to study it more or is there uh, action that needs to be taken in terms of these nighttime pollinators? Are there any that are in danger or things that, you know, do we need to worry about any of the populations of, of moths, for instance, or what's the, what's the next step here? Well, the next step is definitely more research. And, and if I were to direct that, I think what we need is breadth. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to figure out what plants these, these moths are visiting. Um, and then we need to identify specific players within systems and start to monitor their populations. What we found in apples, the animals that are visiting don't appear to be threatened by any loss in population. These are... Uh, oftentimes pest species and crops, uh, row crops, mm -hmm. and their populations seem to be healthy. And we look at the, the literature on population studies in moths, what we find is that there's high numbers, as much as 40 to 50 percent of total moth species experiencing declines in abundance and range. Mm. The caveat to that is those moths are residential species. So the species that hang around in the areas where you find them, uh, tend to be suffering. We haven't done much research on uh, the species that move from very southerly regions and migrate northwards uh, in the spring and then southwards in the fall. So we don't know how their populations are doing. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, so more research then is, is would obviously be helpful. Definitely. Now, one thing, uh, just looking at, you know, the discussion of your, your research, uh, I saw it noted the paradox of the study is that some moth, uh, some moth larvae are agricultural pests. Is that, what does that mean exactly? And, and are some, some aren't good. I think you mentioned in there, some aren't good for some row crops, but they are good for other crops. Yeah. So if, um, of course we want to support our beneficial insects that come in and do the pollination, they're the ones that are putting foods on our tables. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but then there's, a, you know, the, the dichotomous view of that is that these same species are also colonizing these row crop areas and potentially creating pestilent problems. Mm -hmm. As far as how do we, how do we deal with that difference? Uh, my personal opinion is there's, at this point, we don't know enough to do anything. Hmm. Yeah, it could be it... that uh, these, these row crops, just by putting out the, these monocrop systems and, and providing all the resources these species need, maybe they're helping these populations out. And so we're, we're feeding into uh, the abundance of the system. Interesting. So that too uh, sort of lends itself to further research on this. Topic. Oh yeah. Um, so again, that's, is that a big picture? Is that the importance of a, you know, learning something like this or discovery like this when you're going through and you're, you're doing a project and you have this kind of finding it says, hey, this could be important. We need to go learn more. And then maybe that could learn to, you know, ways to make sure that we have, you know, continue the system, better the system. Um, tell me what the, you know, the big meaning is out of all this. Yeah. So, um, of course, I, I think most people and probably most of your listeners are, are familiar with uh, bee population declines and what yeah. that represents to our, our food security. Well, just by, by throwing in a different group into the mix, uh, you know, the next step is definitely figuring out where are they participating? How much do they participate? Which ones are participating? And, uh, and then, of course, the next step would be how can we assist these populations? Do they need our help? 
right. what's influencing their populations, and then what brings them into our crop fields in order to do the pollination. So, and as it stands right now, we we just don't know. Now, my big question for you is: Is this something you would like to explore more, or uh, now that it's out there? In the literature, do you think other people will pick up on this and, and follow the threads where they go? I think I think with it coming out, uh, and and of course the the focus on that uh, that recent publication was apples being a you know a major economic crop. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to open the doors, and I think a lot of people are going to be more curious and a little bit more open to investigating those types of phenomena. Um, and as far as my participation in it. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, of course, my job is somewhat separated yeah. from the uh, the nocturnal pollination. Um, but that said, it was a great project. I, I think um, I managed to fall into something that had a, a lot of potential. And uh, I, I see myself as somebody that can pick out things that maybe have been left out or ignored or understudied and trying to bring those to light. And so some of me I'm happy to have done so and been a part of it, uh, but stepping away from it and allowing other people to step in and, and do their own research, right? I think it's going to expand. I think it's going to explode, and uh, I'm totally for it. I think it needs to be done, and the faster and more people that are that are involved in it, the better for me. Well, that's great, and that's kind of the process, I suppose, uh, with with some of this in science. You you know, someone makes a discovery, and other people can pick up and and run with that. I uh, I originally had the idea that I would start a lab and, and focus on the the nocturnal pollination, but there there are other questions that need attention as well, right. and I certainly won't restrict myself to any one line of study. I I understand. Is there anyone else that you know of that maybe you know uh, colleagues uh, that you worked with or other people in Arkansas that you think may follow follow up that research or yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, one of the indications to me is I, I started this project on uh, it becoming something bigger than myself and bigger than, you know, just a simple study you did as a graduate student. Uh, two committee members uh, have latched on to it. They're already trying to find some grant money uh, to study this in, in greater depth. I have taken some data that didn't make, make it into the dissertation, and I have given it to a, a behavior specialist that was also on my committee who was looking into some of the uh, nocturnal moth pollination. Uh, so you get these individuals that have their expertise and you introduce them to a new project and they yeah. latch onto it and just come on and take it on. And that was to me, yeah, that was definitely an indication that I had picked something pretty cool. Very nice. Well, look, I, I appreciate you spending some time talking to us about it today. I appreciate you talking with me about it. Hopefully the, the word gets out and, you know, for any, any of your listeners that are focusing in, you know, take, take a second in the evening. If, if you've got flowering plants, get out there and see take if the moths are doing anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is great. Thank you again. And good luck with everything that you're working on right now. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Next up, George Dunklin, owner and manager of Five Oaks Duck Lodge, discusses the lodge's partnership with the University of Arkansas at Monticello to create the Five Oaks Ag Research and Education Center. The partnership was developed to teach students land management practices that will ensure the long-term viability of wetlands and waterfowl habitats. All right, Mr. Dunklin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join uh, to join me here and, and also to invite us out to Five Oaks. Uh, today we're celebrating the Ag Research and Education Center here. If you would just tell me a little bit about that, about this project, um, and and sort of what it means to you as a as a lifelong sure. conservationist. Yeah, this is very exciting day to day, Jason. This is the open house. We had our signing ceremony last December when we, mm-hmm. when Five Oaks Ag Education Center and and UAM and the Division of Ag signed the formal papers. But today's the open house. That we got the, the the students here now. They're on the ground. They started last month and they're on the ground working, so the the Division of Ag and UAM, so let's have an open house so we can open so more people know about this. So we're very excited to be part of this. This is is a UAM Division of Ag Day, and we're very honored to be part of this. You know, the the goal of this is to to be able to find students wherever they are. We've got two two male, two female. We've got one from North Carolina State, one from LSU, one from Texas A&M, and one from UAM right now in our first class of four students. So they come from, from a real diversified background. 
uh, is to find students that, that have that love and that passion for the outdoors. They've, gone, they've done their academic work in the undergraduate, and now they're, they're kind of in between graduate, maybe doctorate, but this gives them a chance to continue on with their academic work, but also get the applied side. Get out in the, uh, get out on the dirt. Get out on the land. Figure out how, how how does a duck lodge like Five Oaks operate? How do we manage the habitat? And not just here, we're able to go to other properties as well. Jody Pagan, our who's our, who's our chief biologist here at Five Oaks, manages lots of other properties as well for other people. And so he's actually the one teaching the every day. To when they're here for a couple of days a week, he's got them and his staff are teaching them, you know, uh, all kinds of things. How to, from things like how do you brush a duck blind to identifying certain species of trees and plants and why is that why is that species of tree here and not over there and, and what other species in that area they've got to learn all that to be able to manage the habitat correctly for the long term mm -hmm. and all that is obviously important because five oaks is a duck lodge but uh, from a conservation perspective I mean you you, you like I said you spent your entire life I mean conserving you know wildlife and wetlands and mm -hmm. hardwoods and things like this I mean tell me why that's important to you personally yeah Jason it it I, I guess that's what I am as conservationist I didn't know what a conservationist was when I was growing up but my father really planted that seed in my head uh, when I was 10 or 12 years old driving we drive over from Pine Bluff over to the to the our one duck hunting spot we had a rice field over near Lodge Corner and he talked about how we don't own this land. We're just the stewards, the caretakers, the very short time we're on this earth. Well, when you're 10 or 12 years old, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But somewhere in there, he planted those seeds in my head, and I guess they sprouted and they grew, and I became a, I, I came back after college, and I was a rice farmer, started out rice farming. But the reason I came back, because I love the duck hunting side. And the beauty of it is rice and ducks just go so well together. And the commonality is water. Well, we got to conserve water. We got, you know, water's one of the largest costs we have in both managing both those those resources, rice and ducks. And so, one of the things I want to do, figure out how can we lower our water costs? How can we conserve the water to use more surface irrigation than ground irrigation? That allowed me to grow more rice and, to ha and have more habitat for ducks. That's really what motivated me every day. The duck lodge was started kind of at a necessity to be able, because I to fund my my love for ducks. Um, and so what we've done, what my, my mother who owned all this land and who I was working for when I came back from college in 1980, and when we started Five Oaks in 1983, was kind of the deal was, we didn't take a nickel out for ourselves. All, every surplus dollar we had went back into the habitat, went back into water, went back into the trees, went back to the land. Well, it, it just worked itself because that allowed us to plant more rice and, and lower our rice costs, our water costs, and have more abundant water for rice, more abundant for uh, wildlife, uh, water for wildlife and habitat. And it just, it just built. For, so for the last 38 years, that's what we've been doing. And, and I, I guess now that I'm, I'm going to return 65 here in a couple of months and kind of get into that next chapter of my life, you know, I, I want to make sure this continues on. I don't, I don't know how it's going to continue on. I don't know who's going to continue it. But I'm kind of planting those seeds myself with these, with these students that we're having. I'm hoping one of these students one day, maybe not out of this class, maybe out of class 10 years from now, will replace me operating here. We'll replace Jody Pagan as our biologist. Replace Daniel Duke, who, who has our, our crew here on, on the everyday side. If we don't keep looking forward and make this uh, sustainable, it will go away. That's right. And I don't want five oaks. I don't want this to go away long. I want this to be long, here long after I'm gone off this earth. Because if it goes away, the loser is the natural resources. That's who really loses. So you talked a lot about five oaks, obviously, the, the, the sort of host of this project. I'm going to ask you a question that most Arkansans have probably heard of five oaks, my guess, is we're just shy of 30 years. Yeah. Uh, or maybe more, more, more yeah. uh, just shy of 40 years, yeah, bad math. 40, yeah. uh, we're just shy of 40 years here. For those who don't know about Five Oaks or may have heard of it and don't know a lot, do you care to just tell me a little oh, bit about I'd, Five Oaks? I'd be proud to. Sure. But really, I have to go back to my grandfather who started acquiring land in 1907, L.A. Black, lived in DeWitt. And so I was just lucky to be 
one of his two grandsons. <laughs> uh, very fortunate, one of his five grandchildren. I was the youngest of those five, and my mother, and my mother was the youngest of three daughters. She had two children, my sister Deborah Tipton, who lives in Memphis, and myself. And, and so I, I grew up a tennis player. I, I, I played tennis all through as a kid. Then I went to play collegiate tennis at Memphis State University, and I finished my career in 1980. So I, I didn't know anything about farming. But I loved coming over here duck hunting. And I knew, I knew we, had some more, we had some potential. I knew we had more properties, but I had no idea how many acres we had. I didn't know where all the land was. Uh, we were absentee owners. And so I said, you know, I need to get back and, and at least learn what we have. And my parents really wanted me to come back and do that. But the deal I made with my mother is if I'm coming back, I've got to learn how to farm because I can't manage something I don't know how to do. So she wasn't wild about that idea, but I went out and bought a tractor and a combine. I got with one of our tenants, a wonderful gentleman named Bud Bell, who's gone now. But I woke up every morning and said, Bud, what do I do today? And so that's what built my deal. And so it just evolved over a period of years. That was 1980. I started a little duck guiding business in, 19, in 1982, uh, just to kind of support my habit. And in 1983, Memphis Furniture Company owned this lodge. And we had leased them some land in 1982. Well, they came to me and says, hey, we lost the Sears account. We got to sell the lodge. And we literally, with the land we're standing on right now, our family owned. The line was right here, exactly right where we were standing. And so they didn't have any land to go to the lodge. And it was sitting on the edge of our property. I'm going, I was only 26 at the time. I'm going, there's no way I'm going to let somebody else own a lodge on the edge of the land. Well, I went to my mother about it. She wasn't wild about the idea, but fortunately, the bank in Stuttgart loaned me the money to buy this place, and which led me meeting a gentleman named Herman Taylor. Now, Mr. Taylor was a past president of Ducks Unlimited, an incredible visionary, and he's the one that brought the U.S. conservation programs to Ducks Unlimited starting in 1984. From 1987 through 1983, every conservation dollar was spent in Canada. 1984, we started the U.S. program. He, he knew the importance of the wintering habitat. And and he just he just drilled that in my head and planted those seeds and I realized we had we had a great responsibility with the land that I learned that we had over those last three. We need to develop it to provide more wintering habitat for these birds. I mean it's right on Biomita. As we say, it's right on Fifth Avenue. If you're in New York City, Fifth Avenue is the most expensive real estate. We knew we had a great piece, and a lot of this just wasn't developed. And so I knew because of what Mr. Taylor really put the vision in my head, how to run Five Oaks, how to get corporations here. All we're doing is taking money from corporations and others and transferring it back. So it, it, was, it was a combination of several people, you know. On the rice farming side, I met a gentleman from, from uh, uh, Humming Oak named Leroy Isabel, who invented the zero grade concept, which was a game changer for me. So I, I was just very fortunate, Jason, to have some, some really men that took, took me under their wing and, and shared their life experiences and what they did wrong and what they did right. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to give that back and pass it on. Uh, and we, we've got to get We've got to get these young people that want to live here, that have the passion, that want to live out in Stuttgart or DeWitt or Eastern Arkansas, where the birds are, where the ground is, where the dirt is, where the water is, and figure this out and keep this thing going on and on. A little bit off topic, but sure. I'm just personal curiosity. Sure, yes. Having this conversation with a consultant down here in Humphrey three weeks ago, hmm. remote work, uh, opportunities that the pandemic has presented us is bound to bring people back to rural start us maybe help us bring back rural communities again do you do you see that as an option do you see that as a trend well, you don't have to answer that question if you don't no, want no, to that's I, just that's i'm really good, curious of your point take. i have i really you like to i'm not seeing anything happening we've got to we got to provide jobs for people to come back. You know, they can work here and drive to Little Rock or work remotely. You know, I mean, and we're getting technology here. I mean, uh, Ritter now is putting, you know, uh, we're getting fiber in Stuttgart, you know, because of the pandemic, which gave us the stimulus money, which gave the ability for, for the fiber to come to Stuttgart. We're working on wireless out here in the countryside. We've got to get that. We got to get our technology better and more stable so we can provide that with people. But we also, I, I think that what we're doing in the outdoor industry can provide necessary jobs for people. And I think that's probably an underutilized 
component of our state economy that we're not bringing. I think through science, what UAM and the Vision of Ag and other companies are doing, what Doug's Unlimited and Delta and other folks are, conservation is doing, what Arkansas Game of Fish, which is just an amazing organization. We can do that, but it starts at the ground. You can't do it from Little Rock or Memphis or someplace. You gotta be on the ground, making sure this habitat's right for these for the birds, for the bears, for the deer, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But I think we can build our economy. I think that's an important economy uh, question that you just asked that through the pandemic. Because we found out that people love getting outdoors. Once they couldn't get around people, I mean, bike sales went through the roof, boat sales went through the roof. We have a friend of mine here, CEO Farina, that hunts with us. His sales went through. People bought dogs, you know. Um, yes, I think there's some, some the pandemic might have springboarded us into something we never would have maybe got there. That's a great observation. I really hadn't thought of that. Well, thank you. Finally, we hear from Deshea County native Andrew Wargo about his long career in agriculture and how he feels about being inducted into the Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame. In our conversation, he shares stories about his career as a farm manager and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. I'm Jason Brown with the Arkansas AgCast. And today we'll continue our series of interviews leading up to the Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame induction. The Arkansas Ag Hall of Fame was founded in 1987 by Paul Harville, C.R. Sorry, and the Greater Little Rock Chamber of Commerce. The program builds awareness of agriculture and honors past and current leaders who have given selflessly to the farm industry, their communities, and to economic development in the state. It's my honor today to welcome our next guest in the series, Andrew Wargo III. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Excellent. All right. Well, I know you're a busy guy. You are the uh, first of our inductees who I've interviewed who is still working. Uh, kudos to you for that. So that being said, I want to make sure that we are... Um, we're conscious of your time today, so uh, we'll just dive right in. You've worked in agriculture for more than 50 years. It's safe to say you've committed your life to this industry. Uh, you, you spent a good number of years in the military and aviation before you started working in ag. You've, you've done some other things, which we'll talk about here in a bit. Uh, I'm just curious, what got you interested in a career in agriculture? How did, how did you get here? Well, let me make one minor point correction. My 20 years in the military was National Guard time, so it coexisted with my employment here at Baxter Land Company. Uh, my aviation career was prior to coming here, as was my school career. Uh, I was born and raised on a farm that actually joins the Baxter Land Company. And then I went away to college, drove airplanes for a while, and came back and was involved in the school business for a while and then had the opportunity to come to work for the Baxter Land Company. And it has been extremely rewarding. Uh, we had a cotton gin, seed and chemical business, grain elevator. It was just a wonderful opportunity to be involved with the uh, entire spectrum of, of Delta agriculture. And during that time, uh, I saw a lot of changes from two row to 12 row on the row crop land, uh, use of uh, insecticides that pretty well killed everything out there to uh, very target specific insecticides and uh, very scientific uh, soil sampling and, and precision applications of, of amendments. And uh, I always was curious about learning things. And that's just how one thing led to another. Okay. Yeah. And I guess growing up right next door to uh, that, that farm didn't, didn't hurt things either, did it? Uh, no, my father and uh, Mr. Baxter were, were friends. And I knew Mr. Baxter as I was growing up. And it, it just was an easy fit. I don't want to say the job was easy because it was a pretty good learning curve, but it was very enjoyable and very rewarding. Sure. Well, okay. So that's a good, that's a good segue into our next question. So you talk about the job not being easy. I, I just 
taking a look at, at your history and getting getting to know you as we've as we've talked and prepared for this, just a couple of, of things that you've done here at there at Baxter Land Company. You've managed the operation of the farm, uh, the warehouse. You mentioned the seed and chemical company, uh, the cotton gin. You built a fish farm there. Uh, really, you've done it all. So looking back at your time, you know, thinking back on, on all those experiences and even the work that you continue to do today, could you share a couple of highlights from that time? One of the key highlights was when we were operating the gin, which was the first 25 years I was with the company, was being able to work with growers uh, through a link at the warehouse and uh, seeing chemical business and <clears throat> working with them right on through the crop production up through and including the ginning process and seeing the rewards of, of their labor, if you will, and glad to be at least a small part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else uh, coming to mind? Uh, experiences you, well, you mentioned seeing the, com the use of technology and the, you know, starting in the late 80s, uh, when we started to get into the uh, fish business, <clears throat> my degree was actually in ag engineering. So I was able to be involved in uh, the earthwork and the irrigation and electrical layouts for the fish ponds. I don't have anything to do with the actual production of the fish, but preparing the uh, groundwork if you will was another real highlight yeah yeah I, I can only imagine i can only imagine um you know thinking about uh even so so moving on to thinking about you know your career as a whole before your induction into the ag hall of fame you were inducted to the arkansas conservation hall of fame honored by the Soil and Water Conservation Society, recognized as a friend of the division uh, by the UA uh, Division of Agriculture, and, and many others. I, we could spend this whole podcast probably with me listing off your recognitions. How, has, how have these recognitions as a whole, but specifically your induction to the Arkansas Ag Hall of Fame, empowered your influence in the ag industry? I don't know that I could say that they influenced anything in particular uh, for each one of them. I was just humbled and honored to be a recipient. I'm glad to have the working relationship with the uh, professionals that saw fit to, to make those awards and more so than that to have had the experiences that led up to not being recommended for those awards. It, it's just been wonderful working not only on Baxter Land Company and with Baxter Land Company's renters, but also the conservation uh, family as a whole, uh, the university extension service as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's just, just been very rewarding. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, uh, just a career... Uh, with the with the diversity of yours and the length of yours, I can I can only imagine. Uh, you know, it, getting back to some of the nomination uh, information that that came in and and some of the things I've been able to read about you. One one recommendation letter said, and I'm quoting here: Andrew's knowledge of Mid South agriculture is encyclopedic. It goes on to say uh, that your greatest gift is your ability to convey your knowledge to others. I'm curious, how did you develop this depth of knowledge across these topics? I mean, we've just, just in the few minutes that we've been talking so far, you've mentioned work in education, uh, land work for, uh, for ponds, for a fish farm, uh, your career, uh, in the, in the military and aviation, all these, all these bits and pieces of, of farm and agriculture work. I'm curious, how did you develop the, the, again, the depth of knowledge across the topics of agriculture? And then probably more importantly, for me at least personally, what's the secret to effectively communicating 
uh, such important and, and a lot of times complex information? Well, it's uh, actually a two-part question. First, mm -hmm. uh, the knowledge was acquired sometimes through trial and error, but uh, I acquired a lot of it working with growers uh, through the warehouse operation, working with the extension, uh, people like Dr. Ken Smith, Dr. Bob Scott, Dr. Mike Daniels, uh, Dr. Andrew Sharpley, uh, people like this, you can learn a lot from if you just listen. Each one of these people is a very effective communicator. And to be, for me to be an effective communicator, it helps to know the audience that I'm speaking to, uh, whether it's one person or, or a room full, and what they want to know or what they need to know. Mm -hmm. And you have to talk with them and to them and not down to them. Uh, you have to be an effective listener. You have to listen to the feedback. You have to listen to the inputs before you uh, say things. My experience in education helped uh, because uh, working with teachers from the very senior level to the very junior level and students from grades one through 12, uh, it, it was just necessary to, to be able to uh, let them know what was expected of them. And it, nobody can accomplish anything without knowing what the goal is. Otherwise, they're just, uh, you know, expending energy in the blind. So I tried to always, I tried to always know what it is that my audience seeks or need to know about the particular topic and then deliver it in the uh, easiest to understand terms possible. You know, that's really interesting. And I think a piece of advice that could really be applied to, any any part of life especially you know in a point of leadership or when folks are depending on you uh, and that is your point about um, you know folks need to know what the expectation you got to set or manage an expectation in order to achieve you know a desired outcome you know I, I, I'm interested how you know we can't really tell plants what to do or how to grow <laughs> necessarily but I'm interested how you might apply that to production, you know, row crop agriculture and sort of managing that expectation at the beginning of the year and making sure that you're, you're doing the best you can to achieve that outcome. Yeah. It, uh, well, uh, one of the shining examples we have today is the, uh, ability of Palmer amaranth or pigweed to defy almost all efforts to control it. Mm -hmm. uh, some growers have developed a uh, chemical regimen does a great job. Others due to uh, lack of understanding or, <coughs> pardon me, uh, budgetary constraints are not so successful with the pre-apps. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Ken Smith and others developed a technique back about 10 or 15 years ago called zero tolerance. In simple English, that means you don't let a single one go to seed. And <clears throat> pretty soon you don't have a problem anymore. So that being said, if the Palmer amaranth sticks its head up above the crop, you've got to go in there the old way. <laughs> and not only cut it down or pull it up, you got to carry it out to the terminal and burn it. If you just cut it down in the field, then all you've done is, is kick the can down the road, and next year you're going to have more seeds scattered everywhere by your harvest machinery. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's necessary, <clears throat> pardon me, at my level, to be sure that the renters understand that they'll do whatever necessary to, to control undesirables, whether it's Palmer Amaranth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are a uh, share rent landlord, uh, which means we pay a 
share of certain of the necessary chemistry involved and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not throwing rocks at cash rent landlords, but it's much easier to communicate with and ask for certain things to be done when you're, uh, when you've got skin in the game. And I, uh, I found it to work very effectively over the years that I've been here. Right. Well, okay. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. You talked about pigweed, some of the challenges that, that you've, that you've seen and you're right. I mean, it can be a financial burden. It can be, you know, it can obviously begin to spread very quickly on a farm or, or in a, in a community. Um, what are some, what are some other challenges that really stick out in your mind over your past 50 plus years that you've seen in agriculture that you've, you've taken on? Well, we saw back in the 80s and early 90s uh, a move from uh, just spraying every Wednesday because that was the thing to do <clears throat> for insecticides to using uh, scientific scouting and only applying the chemicals that were needed only on the fields that were needed. The other was going from, uh, I'm referring mainly to cotton, because mm -hmm. uh, up until a few years ago, cotton was, was by far the majority crop. Uh, folks over in Mississippi at Stoneville did some research, and <clears throat> they, in conjunction with the uh, seed breeders, uh, gave us an opportunity to move our cotton harvest forward by over a month. And instead of planting in May and picking in uh, October, November, and December, uh, we were able to plant in April, uh, weatherman willing, and pick in late August to early September, uh, which had wonderful benefits all the way around. You uh, didn't rut the fields up. Uh, you had more daylight available for doing the harvest uh, and put you in position for a good start for the next year. But not everybody jumped on this first Monday it was available. Mm -hmm. It took some <clears throat> experimentation, watching the neighbors, and some one-on-one -on -one visitation to, uh, to encourage folks to try this. Uh, then the next was uh, not so much when the module builder became available, but making sure that folks understand that the cotton had to be dry when you picked it and put it in the module mm -hmm. and covered up before it rained on it, uh, the module had to be shaped correctly on top so water would shed off. And then when the round bale pickers came along, they could pick all night if you were willing to let folks know that they couldn't do this because that cotton would be wet with dew on it uh, and it would seriously degrade. So it's, it's a constant learning curve, if you will. Let's go back to a question you asked earlier. Mm -hmm. I developed a lot of my presentation skills, for want of a better word, during two years as a flight instructor. Uh, you had a good session on the ground before you took off for an instructional flight, and then you had certain points to make during the flight with your student, and... <clears throat> You had, again, to talk to the student, not down to the student. Okay, yeah. And and that gets back into, so you, you, you mentioned that because, you know, you talk about some of the success that you've had in communicating uh, with growers throughout throughout the career, sort of pulling from that um, that education experience, whether, whether you're, you know, in a traditional school setting or in that flight instructor setting, whatever that may be, those opportunities have helped you uh, be able to effectively commu communicate. And everything I've done everywhere has been part of a team, not, not Andrew Wargo, but <clears throat> part of a team. I've been glad to be a team player and continue to do so. And you ask if I were retired, I am semi-retired. I've been working two years now with a young man that will assume my position with the company or perhaps has assumed my position with the company. Uh, 
working together uh, very seamlessly. And uh, I think he's going to be a tremendous asset here. And uh, <clears throat> pardon me, but I, I hope to never be fully retired because I love what I do. I love interacting with the growers and, and seeing the crops as they come off. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Well, I think I've mentioned to you in an earlier conversation, um, you're, you're the first of, of these interviews that I've done with someone who's still working, you know, and, and is not retired. And it's funny. You can just tell agriculture has not left anyone's blood or their, or their, or their minds. You know, um, we've heard conversations about, you know, passions about, uh, food, fuel, and fiber. Uh, we've heard, we've talked to folks who are obviously still tracking extreme weather events like this flooding we saw in Southeast Arkansas uh, in this growing season and so on and so forth. So I, I imagine that you, you will be the same even, even after you completely retire, uh, staying connected to the industry and the, the conversations within the ag community. Uh, yes, I'm sitting in my yard now. <clears throat> the housekeeper's beginning to try to put the house back together. Um, I'm the location that got 20 and a half inches of rain in 18 hours. And in 52 years, it's the only time water ever got in my house. So, you know, you're, you're, you're always up for something new. Sure. Sure. Understood. Well, you, I want to take a jump back to that, that cotton conversation. You, you talked about modules and is part of all the changes that we've seen in the ag industry. Um, you know, that gets to be kind of personal to me because I think, I think that's a change that we saw, uh, impact every farm kid at least in the south too right they they weren't they were no longer asked to go hop in those cotton trailers and try and try and pack that cotton down that's correct <laughs> all right well and speaking of speaking of kids and, and 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 young young people here in the south a little known part of your background is your time as principal and superintendent uh, at Deshay central uh, there you also served as the vocational ag teacher and in and, uh, and other roles. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, communications um, so far and the, the importance of, of effective communications. You know, how did your time at Deshea Central influence perhaps some of the work that you've done in agriculture? Well, <clears throat> pardon me. I, again, was able to... Uh, further my, my uh, communication skills, my listening skills while I was there at Deshaies Central. And uh, that served me well when I came here to work for Baxter Land Company <clears throat> because when people came into the uh, office and warehouse, uh, I couldn't just tell them something. I needed to listen very carefully to what their problem was or if they came in and said that I want this, uh, you had to uh, very carefully uh, check with them and see if that was the chemistry that they really needed or they just wanted that because they used it last year or because they heard about a neighbor using it. And a lot of those folks were at least twice my age, some more than that. Uh, and while we're there, I say we're blessed with having some third generation growers today wow. to work with. So, uh, you know, we, we're proud of our, our relationship with our growers and not all of the customers that came into our warehouse were, were growers on our farm. They were neighborhood growers. So developing a rapport with those people and their confidence uh, was something you constantly had to strive toward and sometimes they wanted a particular chemical because it was the cheapest thing there, but that wasn't always the best thing for what they needed. And you had to go through that with them and explain uh, the merits of both without making them feel uh, uh, ignorant for having asked for what they said when they came in there. So uh, it, it was a good learning experience. Yeah, certainly. Well, 
it sounds like, you know, communication, we've talked how every one of these interviews have had this, uh, a theme or a common thread that just sort of naturally uh, bubbles to the top. And I think, I think for you, just hearing how important communication has been to your success in the agriculture industry really speaks volumes and, uh, um, you know, can be, can be appreciated. So I've got, I've got a, as we sort of wrap up here, I've got a final, uh, question or two for you. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned, um, working with your predecessor to sort of come in and, and, and take over some of the roles and responsibilities you've had uh, there at Baxter Land Company. I'm curious, do you have any advice for anyone who's following in your footsteps and working in agriculture today or even aspires to work in agriculture today? If they want to, uh, if they aspire to work in agriculture, a degree in agriculture is the least of their worries. They need a, a degree, a minor at least in uh, chemistry and at least a minor in accounting, <laughs> pardon me, and then uh, some hours in agriculture are good. If they get a chance to do a co-op education, uh, that is wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, or if not a co-op, at least summer intern, uh, at some location, uh, and and there was no predecessor uh, in my position. It, the position was was created when I came in. My uh, employer, Mr. Bill Baxter, was very involved in getting Cotton Incorporated up and growing, and uh, had to be away from the farm a lot. And he needed someone to be here when he wasn't. So. I've never had a contract. I asked him what I was supposed to do. And he said, you see that whatever needs doing gets done. <laughs> That's pretty short job description, isn't it? And, and I've got myself chewed out many times for doing rather than seeing it got done. But, uh, <laughs> he was an excellent mentor and, and a fine, fine person to, to work with as well as his entire family, uh, I just can't say enough good about them. Sure. Well, I think it's I think it's safe to say that no matter the task, uh, you you have you have gotten it you've gotten it done. That is that is for sure. So one last thing, you know, you mentioned semi retirement, um, but still obviously out working every day. Um, I'm curious, would you mind giving us sort of a a day in the life of Andrew Wargo? as it applies to your, your work on, uh, on the, on the farm there? Well, I don't get up quite as early as I used to, but, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, I spend an hour or so on the phone, uh, returning phone calls, uh, checking with, uh, some of our employees to see if I can be a, a, a parts person for them or, uh, help maybe with a technical problem uh i try to have lunch at the local store a little country restaurant uh where many of the growers in the area are there for lunch it helps me to keep in touch with what's going on uh i'm serving as chair of the local conservation district i go by and uh, take care of whatever paperwork is necessary there and uh, the same thing at the hospital i'm chair of the board there i'll go by and do whatever's needed and we we'll have paperwork there and by then it's getting close to afternoon and i'm living an hour away while they put my house back together so i try to head off into the sunset so i can get there to have dinner with my son and two grandsons oh wow yeah quite the day you have uh, very interesting and, oh, I left out one very important part. We are very seldom meet in person, but the young man that's taken my place uh, at least a couple of three times a week, uh, we try to share time on the phone to uh, just be sure we're both still in the loop because some things still come to me to do. Many things come to him to do, and we try to keep each other informed. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. What, what, let's talk about that for a second. Um, 
I said we were wrapping up, but let's talk about that for a second. What are some things that your work with 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 that gentleman, this this young man that you mentioned, the predecessor or the person who's going to come in and take your spot potentially? What are some things that you've learned? Have you learned anything through that process and working with him? Uh, yeah, that I should have learned to be an expert flying a drone four or five years ago. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's pretty tricky there. Because he, you know, I can stumble around with a $300 Walmart drone, <clears throat> but uh, this individual does very meaningful work with the drone uh crop conditions uh flood damage and places where you can't drive a lot of times uh the only thing that limits where he can reach is the half life of the battery on his drone and then he publishes those for the benefit of the stockholders and he doesn't talk out of school but he occasionally shares experiences he's had with other places where he works uh, that are of interest or benefit. And uh, I've turned all of the Farm Service Agency paperwork over to him. And we sort of share the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service paperwork. And uh, it's been very seamless uh, in our working together. Excellent. So since you are, I, I promise you, this is my last question. Since you are semi-retired but still working, I, I have a, I have kind of a fun question for you. What is a, what is a, a, a technology? It can be a, it can be hardware, it can be software, it can be, you know, how, however you want to interpret that. But what is a technology um, that you, you have to use that you wish you could, you could just get rid of, throw by the wayside. <laughs> well, I tongue in cheek say sit my cell phone, but that's not true because before the advent of the cell phone, <clears throat> I had to spend half a day every day at my desk in the office so that I was available to uh, growers and customers. Mm -hmm. And as we grew more adept at using the cell phone, uh, it unlocked me from the desk and allowed me to be more in touch with what was going on on the farm. It also enabled me to do a lot more of the work with the uh, conservation group. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, back some years ago, was involved in helping to write the uh, conservation title for the 2014 Farm Bill. And most of this involved two trips a year to Washington, and none of that was possible before the cell phone because you just had to be in touch. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I get much use from my uh, uh, laptop, computer, and my cell phone, uh, reading emails and publications and newsletters and things of this nature and occasionally searching for hard to find items that you don't find locally. Sure. You know, I think it goes without saying that farmers were the original uh, remote employees. <laughs> the first ones to be truly uh, working away from a desk, uh, you know, all almost all the time. So, well, let me, um, as we wrap up here, I, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this quick statement and then I wanna I wanna give you a personal um, note here. As we wrap up, I wanted to note that the induction ceremony, which was originally scheduled for August 20th, has been postponed to March 2022 due to safety concerns with COVID-19. Andrew, thank you again for joining us on the Arkansas AgCast. Congrats to you on the induction into the Arkansas. Ag Hall of Fame. You're joining 170 folks who have previously been inducted. I certainly look forward to seeing you soon and I uh, look forward to talking to you again. It's been a real, a real pleasure and I appreciate you making the time today. Thank you very much for the interview, the opportunity. I'm humbled and honored and more so because 
my boss, Mr. Baxter, was an inductee of the class of 98. So I'm really glad to, to be amongst such uh, honored and elite people. That's all for another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with more of the latest news in Arkansas agriculture.